So we come now to 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and following, where Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I won't ask for a show of hands on how many of you do New Year's resolutions, but I I read somewhere that 36% of Americans that make New Year's resolutions break them by the end of January. And I'm guessing that that number creeps up as it goes through the year. I hope, however, that the failure rate won't keep you from prayerfully trying to set just a few spiritual goals for the coming uh, new year. Uh, Somebody, wise guy, said, uh, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And if you just kind of drift into the new year with no goals, you'll probably not grow as much as you would if you sat down, prayerfully thought about it, and set some goals. Now, don't set too many You'll be overwhelmed and won't do them, but just pray for two, three at the most uh, ways that you can grow in Christ-likeness in the coming year. Now, as Paul closes this letter, and remember, he's writing to people who are probably not more than a year old, coming out of a completely pagan background, pagan society, and that's who he's writing these things to. He offers this prayer, or we could call it a prayer wish, now may the God, and so on, um, for their complete sanctification. That's a big fancy word that means holiness, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. But he wants their holiness or sanctification in light of the Lord's coming. And then he follows by a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to complete the process he has begun when he saves us. And then he asks these new believers to pray for him. He gives a couple of more instructions, and then he concludes commending them to the Lord's grace. Uh, We can sum up what we're going to be talking about today by saying that the church is a community that should seek to be holy, holy. That is, entirely, completely holy. That we should grow in holiness. Now, Paul has emphasized sanctification or holiness in this letter. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he prayed that the Lord, he said, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. And then notice again the emphasis on the coming of the Lord before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then again in chapter 4, verse 3, we saw that Paul said, This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he doesn't leave that vague. He says, That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he adds in verse 7, 
For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart from this evil world that we live in unto God, or in other words, to be a holy people. And God has always commanded His people to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 commands us, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And then he cites from Leviticus 19.2 when he says, For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And that is the Lord speaking there. Now, in an earlier message on sanctification, I mentioned that there are three aspects of it in the Bible. There's what we might call positional sanctification. That happens the instant you trust Christ. You are set apart from this world unto God. Then there is progressive sanctification. That's the process of growth in holiness unto the Lord. And that goes on throughout all of life. And then it will be culminated someday when Jesus comes back or we go to be with him in perfect sanctification. We will be totally like him when we see him as he is. Now, we need biblical balance on the teaching on sanctification. You'll remember in our last study about not quenching the spirit and yet at the same time being discerning, um, we need balance. Well, it's the same here. Uh, John Wesley and others in the Arminian tradition teach that it is possible to be completely sanctified in this life. Um, Sometimes it happens gradually, or often it is taught that you're kind of uh, struggling against sin and all this, and then you learn the spiritual secret, and you're catapulted up to this new level where sin is no problem, you're now sanctified. Um, To do that, to teach that, Wesley had to reduce the definition of sin Uh, His definition was the voluntary transgression of a known law, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Let me explain the difference. Wesley's saying sin is only when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. The Westminster Confession, which I think uh, is closer to the New Testament, says there are both sins of commission when you don't do what you know you should do, but we're all also guilty of sins of omission. And that would be where we fall short of God's perfect standard as revealed in his word. I think that the doctrine of complete sanctification could be laid to rest if anybody had interviewed John Wesley's wife. Um... You know, if somebody says, I am completely sanctified, go talk to their mate and you'll find out, yeah, he thinks he is, but um, I have a different opinion. Well, in our text, Paul is looking at the progressive aspect of sanctification with a view toward the culmination, the perfect end of it, when 
He prays that God may sanctify us entirely. Um, He's looking at how God progressively now sanctifies us and then will perfectly sanctify us when Jesus comes back. But my main aim this morning is that each of you would make it your goal in the new year to grow in holiness and set some goals to that end. I want to give us here five insights from the text that will help in that process. First of all, note that holiness comes from the God of peace himself. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. found it interesting. Usually um, when I read John Calvin's commentary, he has insight into almost everything, things that I don't understand. But he admits he doesn't understand why Paul uses the phrase the God of peace in this context. I think Greg Beale has valid insight when he suggests that it's to underscore that God's sanctifying work is the instrumentation by which he gives peace. In other words, um, there is a relationship between your growth in holiness and your experience of God's peace. As you grow to be more like Christ, you will experience more and more of the peace that God gives. As you probably know, peace is a Hebrew concept, uh, the familiar shalom laka, peace to you, greeting. It it means total well-being. Leon Morris says, peace brings before us the prosperity of the whole man, especially including spiritual prosperity. And spiritual peace means peace in three directions. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us to God. We have peace with one another through the cross. Paul in Ephesians 2 says, Christ himself is our peace, who has brought the two groups, Jew and Gentile, together. And then we have peace within. As we have freedom from anxiety, as we take all of our needs to the Lord in prayer, and we walk in obedience to him, as Paul says in Philippians Chapter 4, we experience inner peace. And so those three directions, peace with God, with one another, and peace within, come from God as we grow in holiness. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, another commentator, says the sum total of gospel blessings can be explained by peace. So that's what Paul is praying for, for us, for the Thessalonians here. Uh, The second aspect about holiness is that it encompasses the entire person, your spirit, your soul, and your body. And verse 23 is kind of the classic text for people who argue that people are composed of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. That view is called um, trichotomy. And It is not the majority view. Most Bible commentators and scholars argue that we are made up of two parts. There is the bodily, the material, and the immaterial, the soul, the spirit, and so on. 
Um, usually, those who hold to trichotomy, three parts, will argue that the soul is the lower, more carnal part of man, and that it has to be brought in submission to the spirit, which is the part that we relate to God with. I would be more of the view of those who hold that there is dichotomy. In other words, we're made up of two parts, material and immaterial. Part of that is because the Bible not only talks about soul and spirit, it also talks about the heart and the mind and the will and the conscience. And the Bible even uh, refers to the kidneys as an immaterial part of man. Um, that's foreign to us. We talk about the heart, and we don't mean your literal heart beating. We mean your inner being. But to the Hebrews, and even in the New Testament, there's one verse that mentions the kidneys in our relationship with the Lord. I always chuckle when I read Psalm 16 and verse 7, where David says, my kidneys instruct me in the night. And I think, yeah, I... Get older, I think my kidneys do instruct me in the night. Get up and go to the bathroom, would you please? Um, but uh, that's not what he meant, of course. But anyway, um, the reason I would say that there are, are these two parts that are referred to in different ways is the distinctions between these terms are not always precise. They're not always uniform uh, or technical. For example... In Luke 1, 46 and 47, Mary um, is praying to the Lord. <clears throat> and in Hebrew poetry, um, they repeat the same idea in the second line in different words, but it means the same thing. And, and she uses that form when she says, My soul exalts the Lord, and, parallel to that, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So soul and spirit there are synonymous terms. They're not technically different. God commands us in Mark 12:30 to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, but it never mentions with all your spirit. Um, it's left out. Uh, God is a spirit, and yet... God has a soul. The, uh, Paul refers to your body and spirit several times, and again, he never mentions the soul. In our text, it's obvious that both your spirit and your soul need to be sanctified along with your body. Uh, so I, my argument is, <clears throat> Paul here is not giving us a technical description of the breakdown of the inner man. What he's saying is, I pray that, your total being would be sanctified, would be holy, set apart unto the Lord. And uh, it begins with the inner person, but it includes the body. And that's significant. There are false religions that teach that matter is evil and spirit is good. And so they break those two up, and it leads to all kinds of errors. The Bible teaches that while our bodies are fallen in sin, they may be sanctified. They may become holy, and they should be growing in holiness, uh, being set apart to the Lord. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 18 to 20, Paul says, Flee 
immorality. If you struggle with temptation, that's an easy phrase to memorize. Two words. Flee immorality. And then he explains, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from Uh, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 7, the very next chapter, uh, to show that there is a legitimate, God-given function for the sexual relationship in a covenant marriage between a man and, and a woman in lifelong marriage. But when you're tempted with sexual immorality, remember God commands you to glorify him with your physical body. It should bring glory to God. I grew up in a fundamentalist type church, and they would use the verse about the temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, to say you shouldn't smoke, You shouldn't drink, you shouldn't do drugs, although drugs weren't a problem back in the 1950s. Um, And I agree with all those applications, but the problem was none of the saints there really had a problem with most of those things. They pretty well had those down. And I never once heard it applied to overeating, even though many of the saints in that church needed to reduce the size of their temple. Um, You know, that seemed to be off limits. You just don't want to go there. It's interesting, the ancient church had seven deadly sins. Most of us couldn't name them. But two of them were gluttony and sloth. And both of those are related to being overweight, aren't they? We eat too much and we exercise too little because we're lazy. That's what sloth means. Um, But if our bodies are unhealthy because we overeat and under-exercise, we're not going to be fit to serve the Lord. We're going to be hindered in that process. And we may even contribute to dying younger than we needed to if we were careful about those things. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 9... Paul ties in disciplining our bodies with serving the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 9.23, Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That's an amazing claim. All things for the sake of the gospel. And then he goes on and he explains. Verses 26 and 27. He says, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Um, He disciplined his body for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of ministry. I have read recent studies that show there is a link between physical fitness and mental fitness, being sharp mentally. And uh, so if your body's in bad shape because you overeat and under-exercise, my point is you're not going to be fit for the gospel to minister the gospel as you should. 
Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, well, you can talk because you don't struggle with that. That's not true. Both of my parents were overweight, and uh, I would be overweight if I weren't disciplined in what I eat, and I exercise almost every day, try to get an hour of vigorous exercise in. Uh, I have to work at it. And my encouragement to you is simply for your health's sake, but more for your ministry's sake, set a goal in that area to sanctify your body in the coming year. And again, please understand, I understand some people have health problems and they can't exercise, and that that's understandable. But if the um, Lord speaks to you on that, then apply it. So holiness comes from the God of peace himself. It, it encompasses all of us, spirit, soul, body. Thirdly, holiness has a Godward focus in view of Christ's coming. Notice the end of verse 23 and then verse 24. Paul says that God may sanctify us entirely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Three things to note here. First of all, holiness is to be without blame before the Lord and others. To be without blame, Paul is not saying, again, that you can be sinlessly perfect. That's not going to happen in this life. Um, As I said, even when you're not aware of sins of commission, in other words, you're not deliberately disobeying the Lord, you have to recognize we all fall short of perfection. No one here can say, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. We just don't. We're in process, I hope. Uh, None of us can say, I love my neighbor as much as I love myself. I hope we're growing in love, but we all fall short. James says, none of us can say, I perfectly control my tongue. It's impossible. So there's room for growth. None of us can say, as we saw when we studied verses 16, 17, and 18, Uh, You know, I rejoice always. I pray without ceasing. I give thanks in everything. No, I don't. I fall short of that. So we are in process. So that's not what it means to be without blame. To be without blame means that, that there's no legitimate grounds for accusation before the Lord or that I've not wronged any other person and not sought to make it right. In other words, I have a clear conscience before God and before others because I've confessed all my known sin to the Lord, and if I've sinned against someone else, I've gone and asked forgiveness and sought to make it right. Paul uses that word blameless in 1 Thessalonians 2.10, where he said, you are witnesses, there's the human side, and so is God, God looks on the heart, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Remember that Jesus, when he cited Isaiah, told the Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God always looks on the heart. And so to be without blame before the Lord, we've got to judge all our sin on the heart or thought level. Remember how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, if we 
look on a woman with lust, we have committed adultery in our hearts before God. And other sins like envy and jealousy and greed and pride, uh, sometimes they show outwardly, but often they're just hidden in my heart. And you don't know that I'm doing those things. God knows. And so the point is, again, um, we're not talking perfection here, but we're talking walking with reality before God every day on the heart level where I, I just confess all known sin to him and try to deal with that before him. A second thing about holiness is that it's motivated by the fact that Christ is coming to reward his people and judge the wicked. He says, I pray that you'll be without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fifth time in five chapters that Paul has mentioned the coming of the Lord. He ends chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, all mentioning the coming of the Lord. And here he is again in chapter 5. Remember the parable of the talents that Jesus gave right after the Olivet, or at the end of the Olivet Discourse? He, he said, uh, landowners going away, and he entrusts to his servants certain number of talents. Now, a talent was a measure of money. It wasn't, you know, the ability to play the trombone or something. It was money. And he said, you use this for my purpose until I come back. And he leaves. Guy with five makes five more. Guy with two makes two more. The guy with one buries it. And he gets reamed out by the master when he comes back because he didn't utilize it. And years ago, I read someone who pointed out that the danger is the one talent person not using their gifts for the Lord. See, if you think, oh, what can I do? You know, I'm not too good at doing this or that or the other. And you just kind of go into hibernation mode. You're in danger of being rebuked by the Lord. Uh, What we should aim at is what the Lord commended the two good servants. He said, well done, good and faithful slave. They took what God gave them. They invested what they had for his kingdom. And you should do the same because the Lord is coming. I love Psalm 90 where Moses prays in Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom. Only got so many days. Lord, help me to use them to present to you a heart of wisdom. The third thing to note here is that holiness relies on God's calling, his faithfulness, and his strength. Verse 24, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. I love that verse. I love singing, great is thy faithfulness, because it reminds me the Lord's never let us down, has he? And Paul often encourages us by referring to God's faithfulness towards us. To the Corinthian church, remember that church was a mess. Paul <clears throat> said in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, 
that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Those are wonderful promises that rely on the faithfulness of God to us. He called us, meaning to salvation. He worked that grace in our lives. He's going to finish what he started. I love how Leon Morris puts it. He said, it is profoundly satisfying to the believer that in the last resort, what matters is not his feeble hold on God, but God's strong grip on him. And yet at the same time, we would, again, be out of balance if we mistakenly concluded Excuse me, the word to be totally passive when it comes to holiness. We're not. We have a part to play. Uh, sometimes it is taught, just let go and let God. You've probably heard that phrase. Or sometimes um, uh, people will say, well, you'll have victory over that sin when you learn just to rest in Jesus and stop striving. I heard that teaching as a young believer, and they'll use the analogy of the vine and the branches and say, well, you know, the branch isn't striving, it's just resting. And as it rests and abides in the vine, the life flows and the fruit comes. And the implication is, don't strive, don't labor, don't work, just relax and rest. Well, that's out of balance because there are many, many verses. We saw in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about running. Hey, Paul, relax. No, no, he says, I'm boxing. Hey, come on, Paul. You know, I'm beating my body, disciplining it. Paul, calm down, you know. Uh, No, he did that. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace did not toward me did not prove vain, but notice grace motivated him. He said, I labored more than all of them, referring to the other apostles. And then he adds, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Or in Colossians 1.29, Paul said, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So Paul isn't passive there. He's Working hard and he's striving. Um, In Philippians 2, a familiar text, he says, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and then adds, for it's God who's at work in you to will for his good pleasure. Or as we saw, Paul commands, flee immorality. Don't be passive. Don't just rest. Get out of there. Run if you're tempted. Flee idolatry. Um, perfect holiness in the fear of God, strive against sin. All these are commands in the Bible that imply effort on our part. Yes, relying on God's power, but we aren't to be just laid back and passive. And so the process of growing in holiness requires looking to the Lord, yes, but also relying on Him and uh, exercising responsible effort on our part. So, first point, holiness comes from the God of peace himself. It it encompasses our total being, spirit, body, soul. Uh, It has a Godward focus in view of Christ's coming. Fourthly, notice that 
holiness grows in loving community with other believers. Sometimes I think we emphasize holiness individually, and it is an individual process, but we forget that it's to be done in concert with the body of Christ. We're members of the body. Uh, Did you notice that Paul repeats the word brethren three times? Verse 25, brethren. Verse 26, brethren. Verse 27, brethren. Uh, It's making the point we're part of a body, a family of God. And so we grow in holiness in community with other believers. Um, Let me just briefly point out three things here again. First of all, the church is a community that prays for one another. That's verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. That's a significant request. Here you have the Apostle Paul. And if anybody seemed to have no needs, it would be Paul. I mean, what a man, you know, in all that he endured, his strength in the Lord. But Paul was painfully aware of his own weakness. And so he asked these brand new Christians, would you guys pray for me? That's important. And you know, I need your prayers The other pastors and elders here need your prayers. And we need to pray for one another in the body. If you don't do it already, get a church directory and begin praying through the directory for the other members of this body. Uh, Secondly, the church is a community that warmly shows the love of Christ towards one another. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now before you young men... Go out and apply that to all the single sisters around. Uh, Let me point out that's not the point of the verse. Uh, In that culture, greeting one another, men to men, women to women, probably with a kiss on each cheek, as you sometimes see the Russians still do that today, that was the custom. I uh, had an aunt and uncle who are now at rest with the Lord, but... um, I used to sometimes go to their church assembly with them and the men would greet the men and the women would greet the women with a kiss on the lips. And it just grossed me out as a boy. I'd just sit there and go, hope they don't do that to me. Um, But that's how they did it. They took this literally. Well, I'm going to argue that that's not how we have to take it. It is culturally relevant. And so what Paul is giving is a cultural symbol in that day and saying, warmly greet one another, you know. Um, In our day, it can be applied differently. We're, We're family, though, and we should greet one another as family. I will say this, though. Be careful in greeting the opposite sex. Um... I, you know, I had a pastor friend in California years ago, and he told me he used to hug all the ladies in the church as they would go out the door Sunday morning. And then one day, one of the unbelievers he knew in town kind of winked at him and said, yeah, I see you there on Sunday hugging all those beautiful babes. And so this guy had a totally misconstrued view of what the pastor was trying to do. And he, he backed off and said, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, if I'm counseling with a a sister in the Lord and she breaks into tears, I'll give her a tissue, but I'm not going to give her a hug. I just don't want to do anything indiscreet. Um, 
I may hug a sister side to side. I try to reserve a frontal hug for my family, my immediate family, wife and daughter and granddaughters and all of that. But my only counsel here is just be careful not to convey anything inappropriate um, in greeting one another, but it should be warm and loving. And then finally here under this point, the church is a community that takes God's word seriously. Verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. And that word adjure is a strong word that means I put you under oath before God to read this letter. Now, why would Paul be so strong? Um, Many commentators suggest that Paul is countering his critics because there were critics who were saying to the church, oh, if that apostle really loved you, he'd be back by now. But Paul couldn't come back because um, he had been thrown out of the city and uh, Jason, one of the members, had been put under a bond that Paul would not return And so Paul wanted the letter read because in the letter he communicates to the church how much he really loved them, how much he cared for them. And he wanted them to read it over and over again. Um, And uh, also, I think Paul viewed his letters as divinely uh, revealed to him by the authority of God. And so he was the conduit of God's message to the church. It's interesting that in 2 Peter, Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. And so in the New Testament times, right after the apostles passed off the scene, the early church often determined which books would be in the canon of Scripture by uh, apostolicity. That's a hard word to say, but it meant, did an apostle either write this book or have his stamp of approval on it, such as the Gospel of Mark was probably Peter was behind that Gospel of Mark. And so that was the um, means by which they determined what would be in the New Testament. Um, The point for us is simply you won't grow in holiness this year unless you're in God's Word. God's Word is how we grow in holiness. And then finally, holiness grows when we experience the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, that's a greeting, but it's more than a greeting. It's a prayer, and it's a prayer about something really, really important. uh, Especially when it comes to holiness. The grace of our Lord is not only behind our salvation, the grace of our Lord is behind our sanctification. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I preached a whole sermon on that when we were in 2 Timothy that you can either read or listen to online. And I did the same on this verse. Peter closes his second letter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and unto the day of eternity. Amen.
Jesus, our Savior, is full of grace. And Jesus imparts grace. And grace is the motivation to grow in holiness. Churches, sadly, often bring in legalism, thinking that's how we're going to make people holy. Give them all these rules. Don't do this. Do that. Be proud of not doing this and do that and all of that. And sure, sure, there are some rules in the Christian life and things we should and shouldn't do. But legalism misses the heart of the gospel. It's a gospel of God's unmerited favor to us. And that motivates you to follow the Lord. That He is merciful to me, the sinner. And legalism never succeeds in promoting holiness. It promotes pride. But God's grace always results in true holiness. And so I would urge us, let's be a grace-oriented church. Let's pour out grace one on to the other in the coming new year. So my encouragement to you today is make this a year of growing in holiness. Um, let me give you just a few ways you can do that. If you already don't do it, here's the most important thing you can do to become more holy this year. Begin by committing yourself to spend a few moments alone with the Lord in the Word and in prayer every day. Now again, don't make it legalistic where you check it off on your list and are proud you did seven out of seven. That's not the idea. The idea is... The loving Lord wants to have private time with you every day. His appointment is there. He's waiting. And are you going to show up just to spend that time with Him in fellowship, in prayer, in the Word? Along with that, memorize a few key verses. First Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. That's a pretty easy verse to memorize. You know, you can do that. And other verses, because when you're out there in the trenches, you won't have a Bible and a concordance to say, let's see, I think there's a verse about this. If it's in your brain, you'll do it. So memorize some verses. Another idea, read J.C. Ryle's classic book, Holiness. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands if you've ever read it, but uh, gracegems.org, you can find the whole book there online for free. You don't even have to buy it. And here's what they say about it. They say this volume is considered the best book on the Christian life that has ever been written. And they capitalized ever. Um, But anything by J.C. Ryle, I would recommend you read. His expository thoughts on the Gospels are just devotional gems. Um, Another idea, read a good book on using your time wisely. In the new year, we all have the same number of hours in the coming year. And uh, how we use them is going to determine where we come out at the end of the year. I'm about two-thirds of the way through Matt Perman's What's Best Next? And the subtitle of that book is How the Gospel Transforms the Way You Get Things Done. Um, A very helpful book. I'm sure I will not apply all of it, but if I can just pull out A few helpful ideas. It's certainly worth the read. And then, finally, just get in a small group where you can 
hold each other accountable and encourage one another to grow in holiness. My prayer is that this will be a year of unprecedented growth in holiness for us individually and us corporately as a church. I want us to strive in the new year to be a holy, holy church, entirely holy church. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. Without your grace, we would be in the world, of the world, headed for a horrible eternity. Thank you that by your grace, you've broken into our lives with the good news that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. I pray, Lord, that you would, if anyone is here without Christ, that you would make them feel empty, lonely, hopeless, until you open their eyes to see that there is the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ, free for the taking to all who will believe. And that this would be a year where they start out repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ. I would ask, Lord, if any of your people are defeated by sin, that this would be a year of victory in the Lord, of growth in holiness, that we would shine the light of Christ in this dark world around us. And I ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.